have been going through Matthew chapter 16, and uh, we came to this section last week, and I'm going to camp on it this week too, and uh, Matthew 16 verse 5, it says, when the disciples reached the other side, that's the other side of the Sea of Galilee, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven, keyword leaven, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, as usual, the disciples take him in an over-literal fashion. He's not talking about bread. He's talking about the teaching of the Pharisees. He equates it to leaven. But they're fixated on bread. So they start talking about amongst themselves, and they begin discussing it amongst themselves, saying, Oh, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? So remember, Jesus fed in chapter 14 5,000 people with five loaves of bread. And then... There's a little, little part that most people ignore. They collect all the leftovers. And there's enough leftover to fill how many baskets? Twelve, right? Enough for twelve disciples. Right? So it's a miracle not only of provision, but of precision. He feeds 5,000 people to the mouthful, and the leftovers feed to the mouthful the disciples. Right? So that's miracle number one. Or the seven loaves for the 4,000. In chapter 15, he repeats the miracle with seven loaves, and there's 4,000, and how many baskets you gathered. Now, how many baskets did they gather that time? Seven. You go, oh, he missed. Right? He missed by seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, by five. Right? But then, here's how, here's how amazing God's word is. When you go, well... He, he seemed to get exactly 12 for the first time, uh, but he only got seven. But then you do a little word study in the Greek, and you find out that even though in the English the same word for baskets is used, in the Greek it's kofanos for the first one. That's a smaller basket. That's about a, that's about a lunchbox size basket. But the second word, spurus, is a larger basket. So seven spurruses is about enough to feed 12 apostles. Again, a miracle not only of provision, but precision. And the minor, the, the mini point that you can take away from that is those of you who are worried, will God provide? Is there enough? He can take care of the situation. So why does Jesus go through all that? He said, guys, I'm not talking about bread. When I tell you, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, I'm not talking about bread. What am I talking about? Well, he goes on and he says, How is it that you fail to understand I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the what? The teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Okay? So, now why does he use the word leaven for bad teaching, for wrong doctrine. I mean, couldn't he have used a, a, a million and one other 
uh, things to analogize, analogize bad teaching with? Well, we learn from Paul in 1 Corinthians. He says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? The, the point is, uh, he needed something to illustrate the point that a little, little bit of leaven affects a big batch of dough. Point is, a little bit of bad teaching, a little bit of bad doctrine can create havoc. It can destroy churches, denominations. It can uh, destroy your eternal salvation if you get the wrong gospel. So that's why he says, make sure you're aware of the wrong teaching uh, and realize how it affects uh, the big picture. Now, uh, at that point, we said, well, there's so many doctrines we could talk about that, that are messed up today. Now, last week, uh, we took a look at the Trinity, because the Trinity's in the news these days, uh, because of all the confusion with the whole elephant room thing. And um, we, we defined the Trinity this way. We said God is one in essence, three in persons. As you read the Bible, you see there is only one God, yet... It's undeniable that Jesus is God, the Father is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. So as hard as it is to understand, we say God is one in his essence, three in persons. Now, throughout church history, there have been those who say, I, I can't handle that. And they misunderstand it, and they come up with this formula. They say God is one in essence, and only one in person. There's only one God, and he is only one person. Now, if you misconstrue it that way, you're going to fall into one of two heresies. All right? You're going to either fall into Arianism or modalism. If there's only one God, and he is only one person. The Arians, and Arian, uh, Arius was a, a, a guy who lived back in the, uh, the, the 300s, and he taught this. He said, because uh, God is one in person then he would reject the deity of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus and the Holy Spirit are powerful spiritual beings, but they can't be God. They're persons. He didn't reject their personhood, but he rejected their deity. So today, modern-day Arians are Jehovah's Witnesses. They believe that there is one God and only one person in God, therefore Jesus and the Holy Spirit are not God. Okay? Now, the other way you can go is this way. If you say God is one in essence and he's only one person, is modalism. Modalism rejects the simultaneous personhood of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They say, yep, there's only one God and there's only one person, but he can morph from Father into Son into Holy Spirit. But they aren't three separate distinct persons at the same time time. And, and uh, in some Pentecostal circles, um, they would hold to modalism. What's the problem with modalism? Well, one, we said, uh, God said, you're not to have any idols. The way I've revealed myself in scripture is the way you're to conceive of, of me in my mind. Number two, it wreaks havoc with the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. You need a propitiation and a propitiated. You need God to be propitiated as God the Father is, and you need the propitiation as the Son is. Jesus right now is said to be our mediator between God and man. It, to only have one person, uh, it really messes your view of substitutionary atonement. So we talked about how 
just getting the personhood of God wrong can result in disastrous doctrine. Now, I want to review again today another doctrine, that if you get it wrong, it is really going to mess you up. And that is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Now, I sent out in my email a little quiz who said this, and it was uh, Luther who said, justification by faith alone is the article upon which the church stands or falls. You get this right, you are a standing church. You get this wrong, you may have a nice, beautiful building and lots of people and a beautiful choir and a youth group and a bus and all kind of things, but you're falling apart if you get this doctrine wrong. Now, unfortunately, most churches today would say, oh, who cares? What matters is practical stuff. Okay, this... Theoretical justification stuff, that doesn't matter. Luther says your church is falling apart if your people don't stand solid on this and understand this and be able to defend it. Okay? Calvin said this, justification is the hinge upon which everything turns. Okay? This is not a secondary doctrine. This is a primary doctrine. J.I. Packer said, justification by faith alone is the atlas upon whose shoulder Every other doctrine stands. So if you get this wrong, all your other doctrines are going to be messed up. Right? Now, I know um, some of you may be sitting here and saying, Oh, Pastor Brian, we've been at Valleybrook for 10 years, and you've preached on this so many times. Do we really need to go over it again? And here's where Luther would say, If we lose the doctrine of justification, we lose simply everything. Hence, the most necessary and important thing is that we teach and repeat this doctrine. He wouldn't say once a year or once a month. He would say daily. We need to go over justification daily, as Moses says about his law. For it cannot be grasped or held enough or too much. In fact, though we may urge and inculcate it vigorously, no one grasps it perfectly or believes it with all his heart. So frail is our flesh and so disobedient to the Spirit. In other words, you know what? Some of you may have mastered the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Others of you may have gotten it, but it falls away. Others of you may have fallen into grave sin this week. And you are repentant and you're wondering if you can ever be restored to God. And it's not the doctrine that's holding you back. It's Satan who's holding you back from understanding the beauty of of the gospel. Others of you just haven't gotten it yet. And until you get this, you can't understand the beauty of the gospel. So, let's understand the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Now, to do this, speaking of Luther, we, I always like to go back to the time of the Reformation in the 1500s, where the church had fallen into quite a mess. Right? There were corrupt popes. There was the Inquisition, where if you taught a doctrine different than the church, they would torture you and change your mind, or to change your mind. There were the Crusades, the church taking up arms, to fight. 
But the worst of all, the worst thing of the, the middle-aged church was the selling of salvation. You see, they taught that uh, not only do you need to live a life of good works, but when you die, you go to a place called purgatory. And your relatives who have died are in purgatory right now. And you can buy them out of purgatory with money. Those are called indulgences. So this uh, monk named Martin Luther is agonizing. His own soul is tormented, wondering if he has ever done enough good works that he can be acceptable before God. And he's studying Romans, he's studying Galatians, and the light bulb goes off and he goes, we have had it wrong for years. We have misunderstood what it means to be justified before a holy God. We have been teaching that it's a combination of what Jesus did and our sacramental system and our own prayers and penance and good works. And we're not saved by any of that. We're saved based on what Jesus did on the cross and we're connected to him by faith alone, not by anything we do. So out of the Reformation, and by the way, Luther started teaching and writing and they called him before a council, uh, the Council of Worms, and they said, you better repent and recant of everything you've taught. And he said, I can't recant. And they excommunicated him. He didn't start the Reformation himself. He was forced to start a breakaway. But out of the Reformation came these five solas. Sola gratia, which means salvation is totally of grace. Grace is a gift of God. Salvation is by grace alone through sola fide. These are Latin terms. Through faith alone. Sola Christus. In Christ alone. Based on the authority of scripture alone. Sola scriptura. And when it's all done, you look back and you can't say, I contributed. Therefore, it's all to the sola de gloria. The glory of God alone. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, based on the authority of Scripture alone, all for the glory of God alone. Now, the medieval church did not take, uh, take kindly to Luther and uh, Calvin and the Reformers, so they, they called another council, called the Council of Trent, and they came up with what is still in force today, uh, the doctrines of the Council of Trent. And on their section of justification, how are you justified before a holy God? There are all these different canons or laws. And Canon 24, this is still in place today, says this. If anyone saith that the justice received, so when, when you become a Christian, you receive justice as a gift from God. If anyone saith that the justice received is not preserved and also increased before God through good works, but that the said works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not the cause of the increase thereof, let him be anathema. If you believe you're justified by faith alone and not by faith and your works, you're anathema. You are cut off from God. Problem is, this is exactly what I believe. So I have to make a choice. You can't stand with one foot in each camp. You can't believe the gospel of justification by faith alone and be in this camp or you go to hell. Right? 
Modern Day Catechism says this, paragraph 2019. Uh, justification includes the remission of sins, sanctification, and the renewal of the inner man. In other words, you are not justified until you are perfectly sanctified. That's why you need purgatory. That's why uh, it's, it's your whole life you're praying and doing sacraments and you're fasting and you're wondering if you've done enough and then you die and you go to purgatory for I don't know how long. But finally at the end process of being perfected, then you are declared justified. That's not the gospel I know. So when people go, what's the big difference? We're talking about two different gospels, two methods of salvation here. And then people say, oh, come on, it's no big deal. Really? You want to let people think this is no big deal? That's where we are in the church today. You're not allowed to talk about this. Because it's not nice. Right? Now, what does the scripture teach? Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It says, for it is by grace you have been, aorist tense, past tense, have been saved through faith. Okay, you're saved by grace through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. And just to clarify, not as a result of works. You are saved by grace through faith, not by works, so that no one may boast. So, pastor, are you saying you can just go around saying, I believe in Jesus and live like the devil? No good works are necessary? Good works are necessary, but not for justification. The very next verse says this. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In fact, I believe that when God saves you, he's already got good works planned out for you to do. So um, here's, here's the difference. Let me talk about three different views of how to fit um, faith and works into a salvation concept. Right? I would say that the sun, this is a picture of the sun, and these are the rays coming off the sun. If it's truly the sun, and the, the center of the sun represents faith, and let's say the, the rays represent good works. Okay? I would say if, if you were to draw a circle around that which justifies you, what are you justified by? I would draw a circle around the sun. That is what justifies you before God, not the rays. But if you claim to have true faith, but there are no rays whatsoever, guess what? It's a false faith. Just like that's a false sun. You can't have a sun without rays. Now, there are, there's a kind of theology that goes too far in the other direction, that so emphasize justification by faith alone that they would say, hey, any of you who say you believe in Jesus, even though there's no fruit in your life, no rays coming out of your faith, you're still saved, that's a heresy. That's called easy believism. That's, that's the kind of faith that James writes against in James chapter 2. If somebody says, claims to have faith, but there are no works, you're just fooling yourself. So this is false, an intellectual kind of faith with no rays. Whoops, but here's, 
Here's also what's false. The other side of this debate, if you were to ask them, draw a circle around what justifies you, they would draw a circle around not only the faith, but the works. They would say, it's faith in Christ plus your works that justify you. So here's what it boils down to. The church was split back in the time of the Reformation, and it's still split today over this. Where do you draw your circle? Are you justified by faith alone, and there better be good works, or do you draw your circle around the faith and the good works? That's it. That's the heart of the issue. Now, some people say, what? That's what you theologians are... Isn't there bigger stuff to deal with? Isn't there abortion? And isn't there gay marriage? And isn't there all these important political things that you can unite on? Why, why split over this? I mean, we all use the same term. We talk about Jesus. We talk about the Trinity. We talk about faith. We talk about works. We talk about the word justification. We're all using the same terminology. What's the big deal? Well, that's kind of like saying... What's the difference between a butcher and a surgeon? They both use a knife and they talk about limbs. You better get it right. Now, let me ask three questions as we, as we go on. Question number one, does it matter? Does it matter that we get this right? Now, um, let me go to the Apostle Paul to answer that. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, Paul writes to the Galatians. Now, here, here was the deal. Uh, Paul was writing to these churches that he had planted. And he taught the Gentiles that you are justified, you are saved by faith in Christ alone. Along came some false teachers. They infiltrated into the church and they said, no, 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 no. You can't be saved by faith alone. The Gentiles need to be circumcised like the Jews or they're not saved. So Paul's addressing these churches and he's addressing the same issue. Whether you are justified by faith alone or faith plus something. And here's what Paul says. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ, and are turning to a different gospel. You add something, you add a sacrament, you add a good work to the gospel. It's a different gospel now. Why does it matter? It's a different gospel that will send you to hell. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now, does it matter to Paul that we get our, our, our equation of justification by faith alone, not by works straight? The world today says, don't worry about it. No big deal. Whatever. Paul says it's a different gospel that will send you to hell. Chapter 5, he says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, if you say, ah, you're justified by faith, plus throw in a few more things, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. You've nullified the cross. 
I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You want to talk about circumcision, cutting it off. You are cut off from Christ. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law. Oh, come on. You've got to be baptized to be saved. You've got to do good works and pray. What's the big deal? You are severed and cut off like the flesh of circumcision is cut off if you want to be justified by law. You have fallen away from grace. It's a different gospel. And notice he says this, if you want to add one law, okay, now what you're doing is you're saying, I want to contribute my righteousness to being called just. All right, you want to do that? Then you can't just throw in one law. Legalists always want to highlight their, their favorite law, usually some external thing that they can easily follow. And it's easy for a Jew to follow this. They were already circumcised when they were eight days old. And now they want to enforce that upon other people. But if you want to be declared perfect and add your own works, then you are obligated to keep the whole law. Um, By the way, the two sides argue, and the other side would say, well, we believe you're saved by grace through faith, and not just human works, but grace-empowered works, Holy Spirit-empowered works. Therefore, We're saying it's all by grace. But what I would say is if you claim any of your works, whether they're self-powered or Holy Spirit-empowered works, if you add that to justification, it is no longer grace. Where do you get that? Right there, Romans 11. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Grace is not grace if you add works to it. It's like saying, I'm going to give you a gift. Grace is a gift. If I give you the gift, and you go, oh, thank you so much, let me pay you for it. No, I want it to be a gift. Well, let me at least pay the taxes on it. No, it's no longer a gift. If you add works to it, it is no longer grace. Now, one last thing verse we want to look at. Does Paul think this matters? Paul says this, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Ooh, that's crude, isn't it? I wish as they're doing their circumcision thing that the knife would slip. You go, that's not nice to say in church. Well, sometimes we Christians are a little more prude than Paul was. Right? So, Paul's pretty worked up here. Does it matter? Yes, it matters. Now, here's, the, here's two more questions I want to ask. Why does it matter to us? And two, why does it matter to Jesus? Why does it matter to us? Why does this matter to us? Now, I, the reason I'm, I'm touching on justification by faith alone, and last week we did the Trinity. Remember, we're in this... This Matthew 16 section where Jesus says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, the false teaching, and a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. And you know what? If you ask most Christians who are Bible students, 
are you justified by faith alone or faith plus works? They'll be able to defend that justification is by faith alone. They'll take you to Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and Romans 3, 28, and the thief on the cross. And they know, they can defend that you are justified by faith alone. Now, here's the question. Why does it matter? Why does it matter to you? Why does it matter that the person in the, in the pew is trusting in Christ alone, not Christ plus some good works? Why does it matter? Most Christians couldn't answer that question. What's it matter? Um, one of the few theologians I have found who has an answer to why does it matter, Wayne Grudem, says this. Why, why is salvation by faith alone? He says it is apparently because faith is the one attitude of the heart that is the exact opposite of depending on ourselves. When we come to Christian faith, we essentially say, I give up. I will not depend upon myself or my own good works any longer. I know that if I, I know that I can never make myself righteous before God. Therefore, Jesus, I trust you and depend on you completely to buy me a righteous standing before God. Faith and self-dependence are mutually exclusive. Right? Any system that says you must be justified by faith plus works is forcing you to be self-righteous. Because I have to be saved by what I do. Now, what that's going to do is produce one of two kinds of people, either extremely arrogant people who think they've done enough, or extremely terrified people who are humble enough to know that they haven't done enough. So your theology pushes you to be either humble or arrogant. And if you're arrogant, it's not true faith. It's self-righteousness. That's why Jesus told this parable. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, the religious guy, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Notice he, he believes in grace. He's thanking God that he's not that way. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So his prayer is, God, I thank you for your grace, and I thank you that you have transformed me to be a godly man. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He does not present any of his righteousness to God, and his prayer is, have mercy on me. I have nothing to offer you. Jesus says, I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. The other guy wasn't justified. Why? Because even though you claim you're trusting in God, if you have any ounce of self-righteousness and you're trusting in your own good works, you are not justified. Justification is by faith alone. Faith is trust in what Christ did for you, not trust in what Christ did for you and plus your own five or six things that you do. Right? Again, any system 
that says you're saved by faith plus works, even grace-empowered works, is forcing you to rely on yourself, which is stripping you of true faith. It is a a self-righteousness-producing doctrine. Okay. Now, let me... uh, Let me clarify. You're not saved by believing in justification by faith alone. You're saved by believing in Christ alone. You're saved by having actual faith alone in Christ alone. There are people who have their doctrine straight and they're going to hell. There are people who hold the five points of Calvinism and the five solas of the Reformation and they've got... Uh, the systematic theology memorized and they teach in seminaries and they don't really have faith in Christ. So I am not saying you are saved by believing in justification by faith alone. In other words, you can have some messed up theology and still be saved. Or you can have spotless theology and still be unsaved. But your doctrine sets you in a direction. And if your doctrine that you hold to says, I believe in salvation by faith plus works, then you are going to be trusting in yourself. And that's not saving faith. Now, let me, let me sew it all together with this illustration. Picture all of humanity lined up on the shore, uh, the eastern shore of America. And God says, all right, my law, here's what my law requires, that you love me and all of humanity with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Perfectly. And that is tantamount to you making it to Europe. Okay? Now, there would be some right there who would say, can't do it. I've already messed up today. The only way I could make it there is if I plead your mercy. But others would say, all right, let's do this. And they start swimming. This is the person trying to save themselves by works. They're starting to swim. And uh, at some point, you know, probably before a half a mile, they're going to start to flounder. So now, Christ comes out, the lifeguard. And he says, all right, I'm going to save you. Stop swimming. Stop trying to save yourself. For me to save you, you need to stop self-salvation. Or stop letting me save you halfway, but you try to save yourself. Surrender to the Savior. Now, millions go, no! And they continue floundering. That's rebellion! You may call it religious good works. It's rebellion. It's telling Christ, no, I'll do it my way. I'm good enough. And they will drown and go to hell. Well, they're trying. No. You know what they're doing? They're arrogant enough to think they are righteous enough to actually swim the Atlantic. How self-deluded can you be? The Savior comes to save them. And rather than graciously submitting to him, they keep swimming, or they want to do a combined effort, you swim a little, I'll swim a little. No, it's rebellion against what Christ has done. But the person who says, 
you're right. I surrender. Save me. Jesus saves them. Right? Now you go, where, where do good works fit in? Here's where good works fit in. Once that person is now on the boat, they're saved on the boat, they're dried off, they've eaten. Now, out of gratitude, they love the Savior. They even want to serve the other people on the boat who have been saved. And they're concerned about the, their friends in the water who need to be saved. But that's all a result of being saved, not the cause of being saved. Where are you? Are you still trying to do it on your own? Or are you doing a combined effort? Jesus died on the cross, but you're going to do your part and he can help you out? Or are you like the tax collector who says, I have nothing to offer? See, that's hard. That requires humility. That requires a sinner admitting he's really a sinner who can offer nothing to a holy God. And my, my plea would be, stop trying to save yourself. It's rebellion against the holy God. Let him save you. Trust in him. And then in the confidence that he is carrying you, then you respond in love. Now, one last question, and we're going to go to communion. Why does this matter to Christ? Well, very simply, to think that I can contribute to my justification is not only arrogant, it not only lowers God's law to my level, but it says, Jesus... Thanks for what you did on the cross. It wasn't enough. Good try. But I must complete what you left unfinished. Galatians, Paul says this, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, through obeying the law, then Christ died for no purpose. He died for a purpose, to fully pay for our sin. So, it all boils down to this. As Jesus is dying on the cross, his last words are, It is finished. Paid in full. You see, if when we get to heaven, if we can look back and, and uh, say, Now, here's why I'm here. Jesus died on the cross. He paid for my sin. Plus... I had the spiritual awareness to believe in him and to do this good work and this good work and this good work. That's called boasting. Remember Ephesians 2, 8 and 9? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works, so no one can boast. All the glory goes to him.